0: Welcome to the TechNori Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Catoon. Joining me on today's show, Minnie Ingersoll. She is a partner at 10110 Ventures. Here's the deal. Minnie, we were connected to Minnie via uh, the founder of Shift. She's a co-founder of Shift, which was a, an episode a couple weeks ago. And her story is just so compelling. And we uncovered all kinds of stuff, you know, backstories at Google, back when it was like sub 200, 500 employees, um, and just sort of the mission. And, and she worked on on something that was called um, originally called the Access Team, which ultimately spun off into Google Fiber, uh, which many of you might know. And she was, you know, there was this like mar- marquee moment during the Arab Spring where they had to decide, you know, are we, are we chasing revenue or are we chasing the mission? And there's sort of that, that gut check time. And, and she had the opportunity to work directly with the CFO on this. And I thought, you know, there's so much to learn there. So you'll, you'll get a lot out of that conversation. Um, but I think also really important here is sort of her journey, and why she wants to build ten one ten out, but in particular L.A. Los Angeles, which is she's you know sort of born and raised and lives in the house she grew up in there, and I I think it's it's incredibly, I don't know, it's it's rare that I get to talk to somebody who's very similar to myself in in Chicago. Like Chicago, we've worked really hard to try to build out this community uh, because we believe that there's something big here, and she is the exact same. Uh, person in Los Angeles viewing Los Angeles as an incredible tech hub potentially um but what are the parts she has to focus on for us? you know, a lot of it was building the capital network for the her it 's building the tech network um and i I guess it's i guess the show the best way to describe is a little bit of comparing notes, and I think that is always uh an opportunity to ask questions to somebody who I don't know that many people I can ask these questions to. And so you are the beneficiary and that you get the answers. Uh, This is my conversation with Minnie Ingersoll. So obviously you're on my podcast and I would love the opportunity to sometime be on your podcast. Uh, I find that all of our shows that we have, and we've obviously at this point, I think I've interviewed, I don't know, something like a thousand CEOs, um, I mean, literally a thousand and the shows that are the absolute best are the ones where there's fellow podcasters because they have, whether they're new to it or they've been at it a while, they have this sort of, I don't know, love is the, like maybe too strong a word, but there's an appreciation for, for the performance or for the media component of it. And, and they always take so much care in like how they do it. And so I would love to just know more about your podcast.
1: Well, I hope I don't let you down with that um, you, introduction. No, I'll no, say, no. It's impossible. <laughs> I set
0: the bar very low anyway, so we're we're good.
1: <laughs> no, I'll say I agree on, um, it feels a little like a performance every time. And uh, and I haven't been, you know, traditionally artistic in, in a lot of my life. And I've gained a lot of appreciation for people who are producing works of art or works of their creation and putting it out to the world. Um, now that I have my own podcast, I think I've, I
0: gained that appreciation. I, I'll i tell you, it's the same story. So I, I I originally got this gig. I don't know if anyone at WGN is going to listen to this, but I basically lied to them and said that I had hosted a show. <laughs> this is like six years ago. I was like, oh, I'll take over the show. It's fine. I'll, I'll drive it, whatever. Um, and this is a different show than this one. And I just told them I had done it before because I went to at Northwestern. So they just assumed if you went to a media school at some point, you must've done it, which was obviously not true. And I mean, I don't think I even said anything in the show. I was like, hi, my, my name is, and then like, let the guest just roll. And over the next couple of years, I became so obsessed with like how to drive a conversation, how to like functionally play host. And you know, I don't remember if it's it um is it Malcolm Gladwell who talks about the ten thousand hours. I'm very close to approaching that. and it's the the look back on what you've created and like listening to your early episodes versus your new ones, you will gain so much appreciation and just like the nuance of conversation, which of course bleeds into your regular life as well. But it's just a it's a it's a weird, cool thing that I think only those who do it really quite understand.
1: I completely agree. And here's the other thing. Like it's, you know, if you're, um, I don't know, a new professor or something and, and people, someone, some profession where someone is taping you and, and then you go back and watch the tape of yourself, you learn a lot of lessons about how you speak, how you drive a conversation forward, as you say. So I'm new to having this podcast. And every time I listen to myself speak, I, I learn about how I don't spit my questions out or, or I learn how to listen better. Anyways, it's a great function for, as you say, not just improving your podcast, but, but improving your communication skills.
0: Oh, totally. I would love to talk to you like five years, however many years from now, when, when you've done this for a while and ask you if like what the number one thing is that you notice about yourself and how you communicate, because I, I found out that I'm doing it right now. Actually, I found out that, I I like build up my case like unnecessarily. Like I, I reaffirm what I'm trying to say before and I I never knew that I did that and I clearly was doing it in conversations and business. Like obviously I run another company and like I I was doing it all the time. And eventually as you get down to it you start to realize like okay, there's a look on someone's face or a tone where they get it and you don't need to sit there and like build up your case for why you're about to ask this question. And I think we cut our shows down by like twenty minutes by just getting rid of like the dumb like buildup. Um, so I, I would love that's to funny. know over time where you where you land on that because I think everyone sort of observes something. Um, but the, the well,
1: I'm my my podcast is all it's it's called LA Venture, and so I'm interviewing LA venture capitalists about being um, VCs in a market outside of Silicon Valley. And that's and, perfect. Uh, Oh, it's great. And and so all my guests are VCs who, for the most part, are pretty good at talking about themselves. And oh, so yeah. I'm I'm sort of a host trying to get out of the way and, and set them up with, with questions and allow them to, to run the show. But but for sure, like the, the good questions make a big difference.
0: So this is a great segue because I, I think, you know, I don't want to take away from my like fellow media people. But a lot of them that come straight from media, into media, stay in media, they they have to rely on the guest to, to bring the content because their their scope of knowledge is, is somewhat limited. Not all of them, but a good portion. And then there's people like you who have such a unique background. And then you start to get to a point with these, you know, it'll be LA VCs, then it'll be, you know, some other VC, then it'll be LA entrepreneurs, it, it'll keep growing, but they're there's a certain point where you start to know what they're going to say. And then your context becomes so invaluable. It ultimately your podcast becomes the power of it becomes like, yeah, we got some big name guests. It was interesting. You got to learn about them. And so did the audience, but it was your background at Google. It was your background at shift. It was your background throughout the community that sort of is why you're able to uncover some of the things that they bring to the table, which are unique uh, compared to say Silicon Valley or, or elsewhere. And so I, I want to dive in, kind of head first here, on sort of your background and and how you got to this spot. Because um, I I absolutely hate leading conversations off with female entrepreneurs with like, well, tell me what it's like, because you know you're you're a female. It was I hate that, but I also recognize that it's a unique position, and we're like the world of of entrepreneurship needs to hear more diverse voices to know what the situation is like from the inside. And so I would, I would be so Uh, fascinated to hear your, your journey.
1: Yeah, sure. And, and uh, you know, it's, I've been in tech my whole career, so I'll take you through that briefly. Um, But then most recently, uh, as you mentioned, I've been at shift, which is a used car uh, sales company. And so as you may imagine the Venn diagram overlap of women in tech and women in used cars, (laughs) it's not, it's not a huge, like that's me. Very very Uh, few guests to have on the show. Right, right. So, I'm happy to talk about the subject. Um, so, as you mentioned, let's see. So, I started, I um, I grew up in, in Southern California and uh, it was a, an academic, nerdy academic household and ended up going to Stanford and really wanting to be um, more in sort of, I wanted to be a part of current events in a way that I felt like the academic life was not. Um, and so I thought, uh, I, at first I thought I wanted to be in the math department or be a math major, um, but it really was not where things were happening in the mid-90s at Stanford. And so I transferred into the computer science department and uh, and pretty much stayed in tech since then. So that was, I don't know,
0: it was a few years ago. It was a point. good move. Um, it was a good move.
1: It was a good move. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I, it's one of the things about being female in tech, which which you just brought up, which is, there's a lot of things said right now about being female in tech and how it's just, it's harder to raise money. It's harder to be a VC. It's, um, there's the me too movement. There's a lot of, of things that are, I think people are really becoming woke to at this point. Um, but, uh, but I will say being a female with a degree in computer science from Stanford has also been a fantastic, um, place to be. So, um, so I don't want to discourage people from going down that path because it, it
0: was a good path for me. Um, no, I, I, I want to encourage people to do that. I mean, we have so many, you know, Chicago is a, it still has so much to go. You know, there's the, the diversity thing here, at least in tech is, is, is as, as good as anywhere in the world. And yet is like at like the one yard line, like it has so far to go, um, but the the thing that I have noticed about the female VCs in, in Chicago, at least and, and some abroad, um, is the fact that they they just think differently. And it it's not because of the challenges of overcoming, you know, being a woman in tech or a woman, it's it's just literally they view problems differently. And when I have like we had Desiree Vargas Wrigley, who has a company called Parachute On. Before that, she was uh, the founder of Give Forward, which is sort of a predecessor to, um, to, uh, one of my, it's not Kickstarter, but the, um, why am I blanking on this? The, what, where do you go when you have, uh, you want to like raise money for a cause?
1: Oh, not a Kickstarter, Indiegogo. It's, one of, the, Indiegogo? it's
0: one of those. I, I don't know why I'm blanking on, but regardless, uh, it was kind of the predecessor to that. And her input of like how much she had to do to raise money. In the beginning was so hard, and now because she's got kind of a proven model, she is looked at as like the advisor when it comes to her right. her business. And it's not it has nothing to do with being a woman; it has to do with the fact that she has a different look on everything. Yeah, and and that you yeah. know maybe she just had to have that opportunity, but then once she got it, it was like okay, let's go. And uh, I just think it's really fascinating.
1: Yeah. Yeah, well, um, I have uh, one of my partners at, at well, okay. I can finish my story briefly, or I can say also one of my partners at Ten One Ten. I'll just inject this story. Yeah, he's African American. I'm female. We sit on a panel together. Let's say or we're at some event, and it, we, you know, we're at the same fund. We talk about the same things, um, but all the people of color go and talk to him afterwards, and all the women come and talk to me afterwards, and it's not. It's not necessarily even that we we say anything massively different, but I think it's a lot easier for people to talk to people who they can relate to, who they see themselves in. So sometimes I think even when I'm um, you know not carrying the flag in exactly the way I want to be carrying the flag or something, I think just by virtue of being someone that other people can see themselves in, I think, is valuable. So oh,
0: for sure, so there's, a, there's like a safety net kind of where you feel like I can, as a you know, I'm African American, I'm female, and I ask a fellow person of either African American or or female, I feel like I can ask you a couple extra questions that I wouldn't ask somebody else, and I think that's that Absolutely. like b- big piece there.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So continue yes. with your story, though, um, I think it's it's super uh, interesting.
1: Yeah. So okay, so I finished Stanford Computer Science. I was at a startup, not a startup that I started, called uh, LivePerson. This is in 99, 2000. LivePerson IPO'd in March of 2000, and the whole bubble burst. is actually um, still around today and still a successful company, so 20 years later. um, But at the time, the bubble really burst, and and so I went, um, we used to call it B2B, which was back to banking or back to business school. Um, and so I went to business school at the time because I, I didn't know what I was going to do. So everyone was like, dot-com is over, and I was a computer science person. So I um, went to business school, but then um, I went to Harvard Business School in Boston. I'm from California. I'm from Southern California. And uh, and I immediately knew that I wanted to get back to tech and back to Silicon Valley and startups, even if the, the people had said that dot-com was done. At the time, there were very few sort of Silicon Valley tech jobs. No one was recruiting um, from HBS and people from HBS weren't necessarily looking for jobs in at startups. But so I went to Google when Google was 500 people. And I just thought it was huge when I was going there. And I was thinking, oh, 500 people, it's going to be crazy big. But of course, it then doubled in size every six months and was an amazing, um, amazing ride to ride. So, so that was a good move. And, and it, it was, you know, Google was great. There were obviously times when it was not great. And I can tell you stories of things that were good, things that were less good. Um, but I stayed there for um, over a decade, so almost 12 years, and left in 2013 to start Shift. So that's where that's where my real founder journey begins is 2013, and it coincides with um, with having my first child. And so to to go back to the point of being female uh, and balancing work and life and children is definitely part of my narrative because it led me to some degree to start, to start shift. Yeah,
0: for sure. I, I think, you know, on the Google front, the only real thing that I think is, I mean, there's a million things you could be asked and talk about, but the one thing that I, that I think is most paramount to your transition to shift and then your transition, you know, at, at obviously 10, 110 and and just all of the things you're involved in, I think, So I'm in the middle of finishing this book, um, which I'm sure you heard of, called The Trillion Dollar Coach about Bill Campbell. And he talks a lot about, you know, early Google, late Google, and just different teams, different focuses. The one thing I think would be interesting is if you could look at the best of, speaking culturally, the best of Google and the worst of Google, what was the piece that you would take away that you were like, when I start my own thing, when I start shift, when I move on and I look to invest in companies, This is the key thing that the founding core needs to have culturally in order for me to feel comfortable that this is going to be a good ride.
1: Um, One piece for me, a big piece, I'm not sure it's the only thing, but the first thing that comes to my mind is, uh, you know, I have, have, and and still do drink the Kool-Aid of the the Google folks for the most part. Um, So I'll caveat by saying that. I love that Google realized that it was more than just a public company, but it had a larger societal role to play. And and obviously, you know, in the past, I don't know, call it five years, there's been a lot of tech lash against tech companies for not doing more. And, and I agree with that, which is I do think that tech and and, and our business community generally needs to do more. But also, it was one of the things that I loved the most about, about Google. And, um, and I was, at one point, I was part of the access team, which was um, bringing more people online at faster speeds and lower prices. And during the Arab Spring, we were discussing um, how people could get access to information when their government was trying to repress access to information. And um, we had a proposal for for doing some live streaming of Al Jazeera news in the Middle East, um, but it was going to be very expensive for Google, and there was going to be no revenue associated with this endeavor. Yeah. And I remember our CFO, Patrick Pichette, at the time said, we were talking about the fact that there's no revenue in, involved, and he said, we need to all remember that Google is half public company and half movement. And, you know, when your CFO is telling you, stop talking to me about revenue, like this is an important moment in history that we need to up to. That, that was inspiring to me to be a part of um, an organization that, uh, that at once both had tremendous power, but also recognized that it did. And this is, of course, a decade ago or, or, or so. When was the Arab spring? 2008. Um, and, so, and so, you know, those were some of the things that I thought were both best and worst, because I think, you know, I've been living in the Bay area for a long time and seeing that, that, you know, society there is very strained by, you know, the influx of tech that hasn't really made the yeah. city better.
0: Yeah. No, I, I think it's a fascinating note. And obviously to have the buy-in at that high level, I think is, is the key differentiator, which I think is a good pivot point here for the conversation because When I look at, you know, from a business standpoint, the mission driven and all that stuff, and and it's one of those things where like, even if it's, if it's not well, like the intentions were maybe not that great, but the outcome was good for society. It's hard to totally poo poo, uh, what was done. But I do think that I am seeing more and more people who are recognizing that people flock to a mission. And so then they just sort of install it. And maybe it's because I've seen so many companies and founders and met so many people and spent so much time like on the sort of ground level with them that I can spot it pretty quickly when it's real and genuine when it's not. And I I just think it's one of those things that, you know, as investors, we have to be very careful when we back companies that are sort of like, well, yeah. And then the sweet hook is that we, you know, clean up the ocean and it's like, well, okay. But like at what point Do you not even, like, are you really, really care about it? Like, are you willing to go to the point of a loss or are you, is it just talking points? And I I think that's the thing that Google to me has always stood out as like, yeah, you know, nothing goes perfectly, but I have always felt that Google played a role and knew that it was playing a role in facilitating conversation and connectivity across people. And I I don't mean to make a direct comparison to like Facebook, but there was always a thing with me with Facebook was like, I love the tool. It's great. But- Sometimes the, you know, we're our goal is to connect the world doesn't really like why though, like, why were you trying to connect? Was it because you could throw ad dollars behind it or is there like a bigger, larger thing? And I always felt like Google was never, it never wavered at least in the early days for sure on that front of like why we're here. And I think that's, it's a complicated question because you're asking founders and companies that are very early on, why are you here? Like what, you know, I know what your yeah. product is. I know the revenue model, but why, why this? Why you?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, ultimately I, I, I love what you said, which is, um, sort of people flock to a mission that people are, I, you didn't say this. It's something like you slap a mission on your things and make it I pretty much like said that. I pretty, so, <laughs> pretty much said that. Well, you pretty much called it flop, it's slapping a, a mission statement on. And I see that too. And I, I, I agree there. Um, and, uh, you know, one of my favorite uh, interview questions, so most of what I've done in my career, so I just sort of gave you the quick version of my career, but if you say, what am I actually doing on a day-to-day basis? A lot of what i've done has been recruiting like i'm sort of a professional recruiter yep. um because when you're at google between i don't know we went from 500 people to 50,000 people or something when i was there or at shift i think we hired our first 200 people in two and a half years or, or you know primarily what i'm doing is, is interviewing people and um i always think that people fall apart on the interview like one question you know i'm gonna ask you it, at the end of every interview i say do you have any questions for me and so when people say they have no questions for me, it's, um, it's a bit of a red flag. But one of the best questions I think people can ask are about those tension points, like um, where what have been the disagreements that you've seen? And it could be m- more mundane disagreements between a product manager and the engineering lead about, you know, what project to work on. But it could be much more, you know, when a mission runs up against a business model, how do those two things get resolved? Um, And, and, and I think that you need to know for yourself, if you're like looking at a a company to join, what are the things that are okay with you? You know, and, and it might be that having a culture that's really aggressive is sort of the sort of place you want to fit into it. It might be that what you really care about is having, um, you know, a mission and you don't really care about how things are done on a day-to-day basis, but being able to tease out what's important to you and then ask good questions around that. I think helps tease out whether it's a slap
0: a on mission statement or not. No, I I completely agree. So with all this said, I think it's super fascinating to look at your your career as basically a recruiter. I mean, in a in a not, you know, I don't mean that in a diminishing way. I mean literally like at the end of the day, your job is to sell other people on what you guys are doing, whether whether that's Google or at Shift or or as an investor. And The relationship from there on out, the ability to trust them to operate on their own, all of it comes back to, did you believe that they were the right person, the right fit, who was capable, and do they trust you? And if you – somewhere in there you're missing it, it's almost impossible as you grow to 200 people or 50,000 to be able to trust that they're going to handle the job and do it, not just complete the job, but complete it in the way in which your company designed it to be done. And, and I think it's mm-hmm. it's an interesting, I mean, there's just very few people, I think, honestly, that I've talked to who recognize at that granular level what their role was.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I could talk about recruiting. As I said, it's, it's been my main job function for 10 years. Um, yeah. But I think one interesting thing that someone said to me about recruiting and, and sort of teasing out that mission stuff uh, and sort of the capability stuff was, you can't necessarily entirely test for culture fit, but the best thing you can do is let the candidate, the person who's who's interviewing, know what your culture is. And to some degree, they will self-select. So, you know, there's a the, sort of teasing out the culture fit question is really a two-way street, I guess is what I'm saying.
0: Oh, totally. I mean, I think, honestly, you just you pegged it perfectly because one of the problems that I see – very frequent. And part of this is just resources. You're a young founder, you just, you know, don't have the capital, or you, you know, you're gonna have to raise again soon, whatever the case. We phrase questions and phrase interviews in a way that sort of are like, I'm I want you to work here so badly that I'm like making you say what I want you to say so that you say the right thing so I can check the box and hire you, instead of doing oh. what you said, which is that it's self-selection. Like if they may be the greatest developer ever. But if they don't fit into the way that this business operates and the way that you guys believe, it'll never work. Or if it does, it'll be a short term fix, and you're gonna have to go back out again. And I, I think that's there's something to knowing who you are and like just letting the the truth sort of hit the paper. If that makes any sense.
1: Yeah, and and uh, different companies have different philosophies on sort of that. Like I really want to hire you, so I'm uh, you know. Uh, uh, and And my philosophy is not a let's hire quickly and fire quickly i think I think that's Netflix who sort of famously hires people and fires a lot of them. Yeah. Um, but I believe that startups should move fast on everything but people, and so I try to be very deliberate on hiring and and not just on hiring but everything people related. so once people are part of a company as well so i I try to be okay with missing great hires. Um, in order to avoid hiring people who aren't a good fit, because I think it's just too disruptive to everyone.
0: Oh, totally. Well, I mean, listen, the the ball goes down the mountain a lot faster than it goes up the mountain. So it's like if you end up hiring, you miss out on the right person, they they very well could have helped you grow faster. Uh, They could have contributed in a lot of facets, but it's very unlikely that they'll contribute as significantly as the negative contribution of somebody who was the wrong hire they will take you down right. a lot faster than the other person would bring you up. Right. Right. So, so um, yeah, I, I totally yeah. agree with you. So I mean, on that front, you know, one of the reoccurring themes that I'm hearing here is sort of this drawback to Los Angeles and, and Southern California. And it's eerily similar to the, like what I try to say about Chicago. I mean, Chicago has got its own problems in that, well, not the city, but like the tech community, Chicago city has its really has its own problems. Um, but the tech community I think I'd like to see more expansion and having them facilitate deals and and open up their deals and deal flow to the coasts for sure. So there's a little bit of an inwardness in Chicago that I think actually is kind of, it's good in the early stages. It's kind of alarming as you get later because there's just not enough money to go around. Um, But similar to you, I'm like the staunchest, you know, cheerleader for Chicago. And I see that or hear that I should say, uh, hear that exact same thing from you with regard to Los Angeles. And I'm just curious, like, it's for obvious reasons Los Angeles is a is potentially a great tech hub. Why is it so paramount and why are you so invested in in building up Los Angeles?
1: Yeah. Um well you know, one thing that you said that maybe I, I, I'd clarify is the problems of sort of the tech community and the problems of the city often are one and the same as tech is just growing in importance. And so yeah. I don't Always separate those. Um,
0: we we do in Chicago <laughs> because of the politics. Because the Chicago polit right. the machine is so corrupt that like technology will at some point help it. I hope well through transparency or whatever. But there's just like the crime is so tied. Like in Chicago, we don't have crime in the main city, but outside of it, the way we treat people is very poor. And it's really like at at the end of the day, that's all tied into the, the like how we operate politically. And I don't mean like Democrat Republican. I mean just literally, it's crooked as a dog's hind leg, and so it's it's sort of that's why I separate it. But I, I I don't know LA well enough really to be to speak to that.
1: Yeah, and I guess I didn't really mean tech for solving corruption or or tech applied to like the political process so much as sort of the what we've seen in Silicon Valley is just the growth of the tech community has not always translated into um, sort of prosperity for all in a functioning society. And so to answer your question directly, like, why am I, um, why do I think it's so important to build up LA or Chicago or or other um, cities as tech hubs is, I think that, um, that Silicon Valley has sort of, it's complicated, but I think it sort of reached its saturation in in a way and it's important that, um, that the rest of the country be represented and that innovation is able to come from everywhere. And um, we're not sort of getting too isolated in our Silicon Valley bubble in, in a way. And, um, and we really need people who can thrive in their local communities and not feel like, you know, I, I need to leave the, a city I care a lot about because I think for, for, for myself, moving back to the city that I grew up in, I have a lot of, it feels like home. It feels like I'm invested in this community. I want this community to do well. I'm actually in the house that I grew up in. And it feels like, oh, this community is one that I care deeply about, partly because it is where I'm from versus sort of feeling like you're more of a transplant somewhere else. And so I think it's important that people are able to have, um, have careers in tech, say, without feeling like you graduate with a degree in engineering from a top university in Chicago, in LA, and you need to move to Silicon Valley if you want to start a startup.
0: Would you agree that Silicon Valley, you know, for better and for worse, left us kind of a nice blueprint as to like how to scale and how to formulate funding and things, but also how not to scale and how not to disperse wealth? Like, I feel like I look at it and I think there's there's a lot to learn, good and bad.
1: Yes. So I like what you said, which is it's a lesson um, of things to do and a lesson for things not to do. The problem is I don't think that there's um, a master, I don't know, anthropologist uh, or or someone who's then deciphered what that blueprint is that says, oh, now we know how to build a better flagship community or or city or, you know, tech community. And and so (laughs) Yes, I think um, there's been things done well and things done poorly, but I don't think it's probably only with multiple decades that we'll be able to have sort of the wisdom of hindsight to say, and that means we should do X or or do Y in L.A. or in Chicago or in any other.
0: Yeah, no, I I, I completely agree with you on that. I I think it's one of the more interesting kind of components. We've dealt with it in Chicago, uh, so I'll I'll kind of speak to that. But I, I think, you know, the the one part about silicon valley that's imp, kind of impossible to reproduce is the exits and just the sheer wealth of repeat founders and people who start companies again and again and and the the investors who came out of billion dollar startups like facebook and so forth you can't bet on that and so it's like you can't really like count on what well, we're going to have a strong ecosystem because there's all these wealthy people that will come out of the companies that succeed it's like uh, maybe I think the one thing you can count on is looking at the failure parts and being like, all right, so the city needs to be involved in the economic development from the get go. They need to invest whatever resources are needed to ensure that those people who either do or don't have access now have access, that they have access to STEM education, that they have access to, you know, mentorship, to structure of some sort. And I, that's the one thing I think we've tried really hard in Chicago to say, like, if we could do one thing, how would we make it the most inclusive tech community? How would we make sure that those people who are working jobs that they don't like could know exactly where to go to learn how to write code, you know, to do write Python, like whatever it is, and then be able to apply and get a job at a company or be a startup founder or be part of a startup that is different and still be able to make enough money to make their family work. And I think that's, we're still a work in progress, but I I would say the one thing that I, I think we've taken from Silicon Valley is like, if you build a have and have not system, it's really, really hard to go back and make the change.
1: Yes. Yeah. Uh, I have a number of thoughts on, uh, on that all, but I mean, the mentorship aspect, I think um, I sometimes think about it, who have been the big mentors in my life. And, you know, I can think of a few people who play big roles in my life, but I actually think sometimes what stands out to me are very small gestures that someone has made to me to sort of lend me a hand when I need it most, and obviously, like I'm Stanford and Harvard Business School, and it all sounds very like silver spoony. But there have been some real times where I, I dropped out of Stanford. I um, have not succeeded in many different things that I've tried to do, and. And people, um, and the hardest times at Shift were really hard. Entrepreneur journey is never easy. And there have been people who've just done little acts of inclusion or getting me a seat at the table sorts of things. And I think that sort of stuff people shouldn't underestimate. Is like the power that they have right now to do, you know, small things that that don't that feel small, but sometimes in, in hindsight they are, they're they're they have bigger whatever the butterfly effects, like the little butterfly flapping its wings yeah. causing the hurricane. I think they cement the butterfly effects, and um, and and that's something that we can all do in our like every day to day sort of life.
0: We could do an entire show on just the mentorship topic. I think the mentorship thing to your kind of to your point here is it actually reminds me a lot of when you were re- talking about recruiting and the sort of the opt in c- component. I think a lot of times we think of mentorship as someone who's going to tell us how to do things, and I think that's an unhealthy relationship versus i mean not exclusively but occasionally um but I think where it's powerful is that i'm I'm willing when someone comes up to me and they and they have a legitimate ask and I think that they're legitimate and their and their reasons and everything else, I'm happy to make an intro and to try to connect you and give you a seat at the table, as you put it, but it's up to you to make use of the seat, and that's the part where you know, I think we build these, like, mentor programs, and people are not educated properly as to why they're there. And, and you know, not to go off on the mentor channel here, but it's it's something that I think is so important that we, like, kind of relook at how, how we mentor people.
1: Yeah. And I don't – at least I'm not a, pro- a professional. I haven't studied it. I, I wish I were more sort of uh, thoughtful on the topic, but I will say a few things about that, which is just – to echo what you said about getting that um, making good use of that sort of relationship. I think the biggest thing is you need to know what you want and be able to ask for it. For sure. And that's, uh, and, and as a mentor, I think one of the roles you can play is to help people identify what they want. And I, and especially, and I do a lot of female mentorship. Um, and my own journey has been one of, um, I, I'm, I personally am very nervous, shy, something about asking people, being able to say that I, I want to be a partner at a venture capital fund was very hard for me to say. Um, obviously, I am now one, so, so I, I got there. But it was hard for me to say to other women who are already sort of, in my mind, these icons of female venture capital success to come up to them and say, like, can I be a partner at your fund? very awkward, and so no one was able to help me get there if I wasn't able to identify that that was the direction I wanted to go.
0: That's so well said. I think people really – and this goes into business. This goes into everything. Just really hard, especially if you're an entrepreneur and that sort of your makeup is to, like, you know, figure it out on your own. It's really hard to ask somebody for help in a way like that it doesn't – that you feel comfortable with and that it's like I, yeah. I can't even imagine saying this, but yet I have to. And if you don't ask, you won't receive.
1: Yeah. And I mean, fundraising, of course, that is what what startups do. And as part of that, not only do you have to ask, in this case, primarily for capital, uh, but you have to get said no to on average, I think it's, you know, 50 to 100 times or something. I mean, it's it's a huge amount of rejection. Uh, And so, you know, as I said, like... I went to Harvard Business School. I now should feel very qualified to show up at Sand Hill Road and march into the office of Sequoia and ask them for $10 million. And yet that's a very hard thing to do and not feel like a rube and what am I doing here? And, um, and then when, when, when these people who, in my mind, are much smarter than I am and know much more about the business than I do, say no, not to take that and, and feel discouraged. And I know it's, I'm not the first one to say this, and yet it was very much a part of my journey.
0: Oh, and mine as well. I I took no too hard early on. And honestly, I threw in the towel on the fundraising way too soon in my first venture, which ultimately led to this. I mean, it worked out, but it was like, in the end, like, it wasn't an extreme amount of money. It was like 100 grand. And I was asking, and I, I don't, I, you know, I probably asked like 12 people, which isn't a huge amount. And Granted, this is, like, early-day Chicago, so there really weren't that many people to ask, but I had no network outside of Chicago. And I, I just, like, I got to, like, the eighth one of, like, n- hard no, and I was like, you know what? Screw it. And I took out credit cards, and I started the company on credit cards, and I'm, you know, just paying them off now. But it was like, yeah. I, I just, I decided, I got discouraged by it. And I think a, a new, the, the educated me or experienced me wouldn't throw in the towel. I'd be like, oh. I really should look at who I'm asking. Like, am I asking the right people? Like, forget about, did I ask right? Are they the right people to say yes in the first place?
1: Absolutely. And this goes back to like, how do you build an ecosystem? So you were saying, look, um, I'm going to go back to sort of how do you build up a Chicago, L.A., another, you know, other hubs outside of Silicon Valley. And one thing that I feel very strongly in L.A. is the lack of angel investment. Um, And so for someone who's just getting going and is trying to raise $100,000 or $200,000, it's not always just an option to say, oh, go raise from your friends and family. Um, And so how do you end up with a strong angel community to support people before they're able to raise an institutional round of of funding. And, um, you know, it's easy if you've got Google and Facebook and Twitter and Dropbox all going public and creating people with who are in the tech community already with with wealth and and sort of a knowledge of what a startup looks like, and and then their friends are starting companies and that becomes self-reinforcing. But one of the things we're trying to do in LA is help people who have the means, have the capital to be able to be angel investors, but they're not in tech. And so they don't know what a reasonable convertible note looks like, or they don't have deal flow. They're not exposed to entrepreneurs because maybe their background in the case of LA is, is Hollywood is, is sports is entertainment. You know, it's, it's um, as people who wouldn't necessarily see a ton of deal flow and to be good angel investors, it, it helps if you see, you know, hundreds and hundreds of companies, to know then what you're interested in investing in and what a good um, founder and team and market looks like. And so I do think there's concrete things to do to build up an angel ecosystem to help people like yourself be able to have more than 12 conversations.
0: Yeah, I would totally agree with you. And I have to say, I mean, as a, as a person who would place bets on a, on a market, I'm I'm all in on the L.A. market as well, to be honest. I think as we move towards, not to stick just to entertainment, but as we move into sort of the, the next generation of, of VR and AR and gaming and eSports, I, I don't think that there's a better city or hub that is set up for success than the creator capital that I think Los Angeles is in the media front. And so, you know, I can see why, very logically, why you would double down on that. So as we spin into ten one ten, what are you looking for? What do you think are the key components that need to happen to be successful, both for for LA as a market and the founders, but also for you at ten one ten?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, to some degree, uh, I'm doing the same thing you are, which is I'm doing a podcast partly because I think there's um, exposure and and knowledge of the ecosystem that's really important. So it's it, it. you know, our podcast is, I think, has some of the same premise, which is help entrepreneurs identify who else is in the ecosystem, what do they like to invest in, um, and and how to, you know, what sort of milestones and who's the right investor for the for the things that that you're working on. For sure. Um. So, ten one ten, we are, um. We're in L.A., but we are not sort of traditionally focused on what I would call sort of the, the, the industries you might think of for L.A. So digital media, for instance, or esports. sports um, we're, we're a fairly nerdy um, type fund. We tend to invest in software companies, in engineers turned entrepreneurs. Um, as I said, I'm from an academic household, so I'm here right across the street from the Caltech campus um and i i I have a lot i feel a lot of affinity for the entrepreneurs um coming out of caltech and and the universities here in la and there's a lot of great universities but traditionally um the la universities ucla usc caltech uh loyola Marymount uh claremont mckenna there's a ton of universities here but the engineers graduate and move to san francisco because they think they have to do that in order to have a career in tech and so I think that exposure and, and building that snowball that's rolling down the hill in a positive way um, of having people stay in the cities that they're from and not feel like they need to move to San Francisco. But luckily, well, no, not luckily, but San Francisco is also making, it's, it's becoming less attractive on its own. So I think that naturally we're going to see a lot of growth of these other cities because it's very hard for someone who um, – isn't yet making big Google salary to just up and move to, to San Francisco as a new grad, for instance. So I think that we're going to, by necessity, be coming up with new options.
0: What you said there that I think is really, I it's super important, is the tech support component. Like in Chicago... We, had, we've, we are just now getting into really doubling down on, on helping build out engineering programs and making sure Northwestern, Chicago, and et cetera, company, or colleges, the kids are staying here instead of going elsewhere. And, and like you said, San Francisco, New York, some of the prices are, are maybe moving people closer to the middle again. But the biggest piece for us was capital. We just didn't have that network of people who had that kind of wealth that could do it. And so it was like, how do we, how do we get more capital into the city? That was our early push. For you, I mean, capital is always a push for everybody, but for you, I think the part that you said that is really interesting is taking the approach around building technologists and making sure like, yeah, we've got, you know, all kinds of creators. We've got money. We've got people. How do we make sure people want to be involved from an engineering development standpoint? How do we create, you know, what I would call careers? And that ultimately is like the bedrock that you build L.A. and ultimately, you know, your investment funds, your career on. And I I just think it's super important that people maybe sometimes don't realize that like you have to build this in layers and it it seems like you're doing that with tech.
1: Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's uh, investing in HR departments, if you will, that sounds like, Oh, investing in HR, but the development aspect, you can bring a huge amount of value by investing in learning and development by investing in your people so that so that the people um, in whatever ecosystem are actually trained as product managers. So it might be that in LA there's a, there feels like there's a dearth of, of people who have experience as product managers. Well, if that's the case, then one option is to train people to be product managers. It's, um, you know, a lot of these skills are skills that are best developed, sure, by going through the trenches, but there's also a lot of value that can be brought by by studying these disciplines and, by having companies invest in their
0: employees. Totally agree. If we could go forward a couple of years, we don't want to go too far, but if we can go forward a couple of years, what would the the perfect growth position be both for you and ten one ten, but also for LA as a whole? What are the, the things that you could look back and be like, if we can achieve these things over the next few years, I think we're on our way?
1: Well, it depends how big picture, how small picture. Um <laughs> So, once, uh, once again, such a fantastic picture,
0: answer. Because like just you saying that, like I, I we were talking to um, you probably know the name uh, Rahul Vora from Superhuman, the email yes, app. Yes, of
1: course. And I was ju- yes. I, I just
0: had Rahul on the show last week, and he was like, I'm going to say this 15 times during this interview. Don't edit any of them out. Each time I'm going to respond in the micro and in the macro because I feel like if you're not looking at your product or your business or your life as like where am I going and why am I going here. And then what do I do every day to get closer to that? Then you're missing it. And you led the exact same way. So I had to point it out.
1: That's funny. Uh, wow. That's great. He's uh, someone I uh, admire hugely for what he's built. It's superhuman. And I am a user. Um, uh, so, I mean, I, I want to feel like I'm leaving a better society for my children. right? And, I, and, I, and not that I personally feel like I'm going to. Be responsible for that, but I want to to feel like our society is going that direction. I think I've been in in you know in the heart of the tech world and at mostly at Google, and um, you know I feel like, gosh, uh, who said it? Someone important said something like, if we don't solve these problems, um, oh, it was former Secretary of Labor. Anyways, um, uh, anyways, he said, if we don't solve these problems in our society, we're all just you know, the tech community is going to wake up and start just building armored plates for our Teslas. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and, like, we're going to end up in a society that we don't want to be in. And so one of the things I want to have is to continue to feel like, you know, we're in a, we're in a place where we walk down the street and everyone's... um you know everyone's life is is sort of the the rising tide is actually rising, and I don't you know I have no rose-colored glasses and think that happens every day for every person. But that is big picture would would be part of it. On the small level, um, I ten one ten as I said, we do early stage tech investing, and I actually don't want that to change. I love being able to um, give founders. Uh, their first institutional check. It's just this huge moment where someone is going from a dream to being able to have enough capital to you know, move forward in a significant way. And, um, and yet they're also not at a stage where one, it's about spreadsheets. I never wanna be like, I- I'm not a Series B leader, um, private equity person who wants to slice and dice the numbers. Um, I wanna be investing in a team and in a vision And in a dream and I don't want to move away from that. And, and I think it's, it's my special skill. I've been a product manager and I actually like it when there isn't necessarily product market fit and I get to work with entrepreneurs and roll up my sleeves and help iterate, um, before it's just off to the races. We know exactly what we're going to do. And now it's about, you know, working on our CAC to LTP ratios, um, which is important. I just, um, uh i I like some of that i like i like where we are and i want to stay there but i want to be part of that um in an inclusive uh way that builds a strong society
0: uh couldn't say it better myself um and of course lastly i would love to end up here with where we started which is on the podcast what are some of the people and things that you are hoping to uncover with your podcast
1: well um gosh uh First off, I am just trying to make it easier for people who are navigating raising money from LA venture capitalists. And, and a lot of the LA venture folks are not only investing in LA entrepreneurs, but I just want to make it easier. Um, I still find it sort of amazing that I can't just go to a website and know whether you write, do you write a $250,000 check or 25, well, a, a a five million dollar check like it's not always completely obvious when you go to like the website of a fund to know what size checks they write and how they like to invest so i want to sort of remove that um that and then um you know (laughs) to some degree i i i still consider myself as my audience like i'm going through this i'm interviewing la venture capitalists i want to learn something from the discussion so i want to i want to actually understand when they say you know they want to see Traction. Well, what does traction mean? Does that mean, you know, a certain, uh, does that mean $10,000 MRR? Uh, what sort of MRR do they consider interesting? You know, so I want to be walk away from every episode feel like I've learned something.
0: I, I completely agree. It's the same journey that I'm on now. And I, and I don't think it'll ever end. It's like, I, I look at it always as like my own audience. Like, I don't know that. Every investor says they write from a hundred, you know, 200,000 to 5 million. Like that's what they are like, what is it? 5 million? Is it 200? Like, I don't, I think that's it's such a, an interesting observation because I don't think people recognize it. It is like as investors that they realize how absolutely impossible they have made it for those of us as entrepreneurs well, to find them.
1: When I was raising money, someone said, Minnie, just take the fund size and divide by 50. And that's their average check size most of the time. And I was like, really? I did not know that. Um, and so now I go to Crunchbase. And I look up what size of uh, what size of the fund that they're currently investing out of, and I divide by 50 and and approximately, and I know it does not work in every case, but approximately think that most funds want to do about 25 core investments out of the fund and then reserve twice that amount for follow-on investing so that's that's, that's my current um, it doesn't work all the time, but that that was um, a nice insight someone shared with me early on.
0: I have a funny feeling that's going to end up as a quote meme on on the Technor Instagram. <laughs>
1: Awesome. Fantastic.
0: This has been great, Minnie. I appreciate it very much. Uh, where will people be able to go to find the podcast to to touch base with you at 10 110 and, and to follow you just in general?
1: Yeah, um, it's LA Venture if you search any of your podcast apps. Um, and I'm easiest found on LinkedIn, which is very nerdy. But if you search for Minnie or 10 110, there aren't that many Minis. It's Minnie like Minnie Mouse. And I, I accept, I'm very promiscuous on LinkedIn accepting requests <laughs> from people who, especially entrepreneurs.
0: Well, I will I will be requesting you very soon if I haven't already.
1: Fantastic.
0: Awesome. Thank you, Minnie, so much. To invest in startups, download past episodes or apply to pitch on the Startup Showcase, check out technori.com. Stay connected by following us on social at technori, or you can follow me at Katoon. Boom, that's a wrap.